Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life. I'm Guthrie Straw. And I'm Joan Pettit, broadcasting from our homes in Portland, Oregon, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. This is the show where we bring you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with a global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains and transit, adventures and life hacks. And today, our guest, Polly Bledsoe. That's right. Polly will be in later in the episode to chat with us. We look forward to catching up and uh, learning about some adventures. It sounds like maybe even a lot of adventures and a few things in between. Uh, But before Polly joins us, it's just you and me and Armando and your cat in the background, which seems to be very much liking the plant that you put up. Uh, She is. I like like a cat zoom. She is a big fan of cats, and ultimately I felt like I wasn't getting invited to enough meetings, so I decided to reorganize my office so that it's also a a kitty cam. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that's the real life hack. Yeah, so she hangs out with me during the day, which is most of the day. So I've got, you know, the dog on the floor, the cat in the window bed, another cat sometimes visits plants. Teenagers, here's life. Life during life during the pandemic, <laughs> and we've got it all recorded for posterity. <laughs> we uh, sure do. What's your cat's name, and how has your week been, Joan? Uh, I my cat, the one that uh, the orange one. That's that I was going to say. Some of you, which is to say, Guthrie and Armando are seeing is Yuzu, and then my other cat is Sky. And Guthrie, I have to tell you, I've had a. I've had an interesting week, but I have an answer to the question I thought you were going to ask me about what have I learned this week. So did you want to? Well, yeah, (laughs) let's go into it. (laughs) Well, actually, I've learned I've learned a bunch of things and some of them have to do with pollinators. Uh, But I learned something about biking this week. Um, I a week ago, I hurt my back. I was um, my back had been hurting me a little bit. So I was warming up to lift weights, as you've heard me talk about. And I thought, you know, I should really, my back's been a little sore. I should warm up really well today so that I don't hurt myself. And then during my warm up, I hurt myself. <laughs> so, oh. yeah. So I really uh, tweaked my back. Uh, it hurt a lot, like as much as pain as I've had. And I just, anyway, um, but I was thinking about it, and uh, last night I finally felt, or I didn't, no, I didn't even feel well enough. Last night I just went for a little bike ride, and I, and I think what I've realized is that in this past year I'm biking so much less, and I think that um, my bike commute was just giving me this sort of like baseline level of movement and activity that was just part of my lifestyle. And I take walks and I walk to the grocery store and sometimes I take little bike rides, but I just, and I lift weights. So I'm stronger, but I don't have, I'm really, I think my body is missing and needing uh, my, well, not necessarily a commute, but yeah. So, I mean, I think I could have said that but I think that last week when I hurt my back I was like yeah I'm really yeah I think all those little muscles and such that get moved around and stretched on my bike are are not quite so strong as they were a year ago Mm. yeah it makes a huge difference sometimes that's a bummer (laughs) I didn't I didn't know you were hurt you never said anything about it 
I, th- I thought I did. I thought I did. Well, because last week was my spring break and I had taken a few days off and I was going to plant my herb garden. I had all these plans and I was going to go for actually a group ride and I just felt like I just had to take it easy. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm okay now and I'll be, I think I'll be okay. And I've got a, um, I don't think I've like done any, I think it was basically I tweaked my back and I need to just sort of relax it and things like that. But um, yeah, so, but I, I was just thinking, cause I think a lot of us have had that experience over the past year where our lives have changed so much that our movement patterns are so different. So even if we're still active, it's probably in very different ways than it was before. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, a lot of chairs, a lot of standing. Uh, humans are not meant to really sit in chairs the whole day. I think I think a few of us figured that out this year. Yeah, and that's, I mean, I, I have a standing desk that I don't use as much as I should, but it, it's still not as, not as uh, helpful <laughs> a movement. It's just... Yeah. And then what do, what do you do at the end of the day? I'm like, oh, okay. I guess I'll go sit on the couch now <laughs> that my work day is over. Yeah, right. That's so. why when we record podcast, uh, the sprocket, I, I do it standing up because mm-hmm. I've been mm-hmm. sitting all day. I just do not want to keep sitting. Mm-hmm. I've definitely been appreciative of having a desk that has different positions. Um, I don't have a lot of furniture in the place that I live at currently, which is amazing. And I love it because uh, from what I understand, our bodies do better when we're taking ourselves from floor position to standing position. It's more, it uses a lot more things in the body instead of sit stand or sleep stand. And so I've been enjoying that effect. I feel like that is similar to like biking, like that's keeping me ahead of the curve, even if I'm failing in other respects. Yeah, there's, there's different, um, there are these different, you know, anything that people talk about in this regards tends to become like a fitnessy thing, but there's like a, this thing called, um, natural movement, but now it's like natural movement or move nat TM, you know, like somebody had to trademark it. And then there's this person, Katie Bowman, who does this thing called move your DNA. And a lot of these things are about like, so one of the things Katie Bowman says is, um, put something that you use all the time in a high up kitchen cabinet where you have to reach for it because reaching is good for us to do, or, you know, don't have lots of comfortable furniture, like get a couple pillows, sit on the, sit on the floor in your house. And she has something sort of like a, kind of like monkey bars or a jungle gym, like inside her house. Uh, I, and, and, you know, carrying your groceries, right. Or carrying things is really right. I think about that when I walk to the grocery store, that, that carrying that load of groceries on my back is good for my body to give it some, some stress that way. Yeah, I mean, I know all these things. <laughs> I just don't always do oh. them. But sometimes we learn as well. Like I, uh, I just learn so much about bodies are pretty cool. And I've been learning a lot about bodies lately. If we're talking about things we've learned and um, was recently talking about the, oh gosh, I shouldn't do this because I'm not a doctor, but um just learning about how strong our backs are really and how like leading science uh, really does confirm that like a lot of things that were thought to be like, oh, it's this or it's that or a lot of people prescribe as like, nope, turns out the back's actually super, super strong. And there's been this kind of cultural narrative of 
that not being the case. And so like when you get into like clinical studies, the psychosomatic response versus um, like the actual pain response. And the more we learn, the more generally speaking, we have found that, yeah, well, you know, backs have stuff that happened to them from time to time. Um, our backs are much more resilient than a lot of people give them credit for is my understanding of it. I, it's really interesting that you say that. I just, a friend, when I hurt my back, a friend loaned me this great book called Somatics by Thomas Hanna, I think is the author. And uh, I haven't finished it yet, but it's really resonating with me. Basically, um, he talks about a lot of the things that we think of as aging, like being stooped over or having, you know, uh, like limps or something off with your posture. A lot of that is actually just that, our muscles, it's not that they're weak, it's that they're really strong and they're tightly contracted and our body has like forgotten how to relax those muscles. And this was really resonating with me because last week it just felt like my back, um, it felt like I just couldn't relax the muscles in my back. And basically what this book talks a lot about, and I don't know if folks know more about this and want to write in and tell me why it's flim flam (laughs) they can but um it it really resonates with me that basically that you know like they'll take x-rays of somebody's back and it's like you can't see anything wrong because the problem is that their muscles are just really tightly contracted and people have to sort of remember how to relax and it has a series of of stretches and um and things, but I haven't gotten there yet <laughs> to start doing them. But yeah, that a lot of things that we think of as aging are are just uh, ways of moving our body that we've kind of forgotten how to do, but still have the the potential to do. So it's not that our back is our backs, you know, are are weak. They might be really strong. They're just tightly clenched all the time, or you know, we have all these problems from sitting and you know, and biking is. I mean, we kind of sit while we bike too. Yeah, bikes are rigid. Like bikes are meant to put your body in a way to do one thing efficiently, Mm -hmm. not necessarily a lot of things. Mm -hmm. I, um, when I started doing, I started like a year and a half ago, like trying to be on the floor as much as I could. And mainly it was because I think I was listening to like a radio lab podcast about the longest lived, uh, like communities or cultures in the world. And like to a person, pretty much every one of them like had a lifestyle where you sat on the floor and then got up to do things or maybe you kneeled or maybe you squatted. And um, so I was like, well, that sounds like some wisdom to me. I'm just going to try doing that. And it's been like a year and a half experience. And I can say that it has felt better for me. I've been enjoying it quite a bit. Um, That's no furniture in your apartment. What's that? That's no furniture in your department your apartment yeah it's easy to not pick it up when you don't have it in the first place (laughs) it is supposed to be yeah it's supposed to be like um sort of the ability to like stand up from a seated from the ground using your legs not like needing to put your hands on the ground um I don't know. It's an indication that like, it's good to be able to do that. And it's, I've, I don't know. Yeah. I've, the past few years, I've, I've read some things, a lot of things about aging and aging bodies. And, and one of the things that really resonates with me is like, if you want to be able to do something when you're 90, you need to be able to do much more than that when you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever. So think about, yeah. Or like, basically if you want to be able to, 
pick up a grandchild. I don't want grandchildren anytime soon, but perhaps someday I will have them. And if I want to be able to pick up a, a grandchild when I'm 60, you know, um, what, what's the weight that I need to be able to pick up now that mimics that? Well, it's a lot more than what it, what a little kid weighs, not 60, 60 is not that old, but not that old. It's 60 is not old. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, but the point is, like, what do you want to be able to do? Like, I want to be able to ride ride my bike and go to the grocery store, walk to the grocery store Yeah. through my whole life. So I need to be doing those things and more now. Because if you don't, if, you, if you're not doing it now, if you want to headbang in a mosh pit when you're 80, you better be doing it now, but not during With the a pandemic. <laughs> With the mask on. So welcome to our guest, Polly Bledsoe. Uh, Polly, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. So, yeah, my name's Polly, as she said, and I am in my mid-30s. I've been cycling for probably roughly 20 years and commuting for most of that and then bike touring for since 2011 so about about 10 years now and i'm a trans woman and i uh have been bike packing for yeah a decade now so and uh yeah and i volunteer i'm a volunteer at bike farm and yeah Well, thank you and welcome. And I would love to know how you got started because you're from Alaska, right? Isn't that where you grew up? And did you start uh, bicycling more seriously there? And did you start bikepacking when you were there? Or was that something that came about when you were here in Portland? That's something actually, it's kind of a funny story. So it's kind of my first bikepacking adventure was not so much a well-planned adventure and I was I didn't even know what bikepacking was yet um so I biked for out of necessity uh in Alaska at first um and often rode the bus in the winter and um and so my first bikepacking adventure, I was going to meet a friend out who lived in the valley, which is kind of out there where Sarah Palin is in the Wasilla land, which is about 645 miles north of Anchorage. So I took the bus with a really janky little mountain bike and a backpack, and I took the bus as far north the suburb the suburbs I can go, so it'll probably cut off. 15 or 20 miles and bike 20 miles out to my friend's house and um and 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 back and that was my first adventure and then i ended up moving to florida um and kind of wasn't really biking for a while and then i'd moved there with a partner and we broke up and i needed to gain more independence so without their car i decided to get another bike and then um that bike broke and i went to a bike shop and uh, got a new bike. There was this nice little eight-speed cruiser. It was a super comfy bike, not exactly a touring bike. And I took that on another tour, uh, so to speak, that I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. And I actually I think I asked the guy in the shop, I was like, "Can I? Can you actually ride? I didn't even know you could take a bike that long and on that long of a trip without, you know." damaging it it's like will this damage it do i have to worry about things Could, am i gonna you know it's like yeah you can buy it as long as you want usually 
<laughs> it's more about, you know, this and that. It's not necessarily one thing or the other that's going to end your trip if it does or something breaks. So, yeah, I, I this is Florida. I was living in Orlando, and I bike from Orlando, Florida, on the far east side of Orlando, um, to Cocoa Beach. And that's about a, nearly a 60-mile trip. So that was my, uh, and I and biked all the way back about three days later. I got a little hotel, just had a little beach hang out by myself. And um, from there, I uh, ended up moving back to Alaska after a couple more years and um, got another bike and was bike commuting as I usually do again. Um, not really being super experienced, but like could change a flat kind of experienced. And I, uh, got in a bit of a, a bit of a small, like two or three mile per hour wreck and off a curb off this giant curb. And they kind of screwed up my bike a little bit. And there's a guy across the street and he's also a cyclist. And he's like, Hey, there's this place called off the chain you can go to and you can, they can t- show you how to fix your bike and it costs almost nothing. I'm like, that sounds amazing because I'm pretty broke right now. So that's that was kind of my introduction to bike collectives and uh, in volunteering and starting to learn bicycle mechanics. And through that, um, I was able to learn more about, about bike packing, bike touring, and uh, found out what a pannier was. Um, I think I'm saying that right. There's a bit of debate on that. <laughs> um And uh, kind of, like, realized that I could do this long-distance bike trip thing uh, a whole lot easier with these bags and um, being able to, you know, have more gear in general and kind of talk to a lot of people there who had already done a lot of big trips and learned, like, how to basically bike tour through friends and fellow volunteers and then kind of struck out on my own after some small research and my first real planned tour um i went from um anchorage alaska to seward alaska and this would be about 2012 2011 and that's about 115 miles and it was my first century, and I planned on camping, and that didn't end up happening due to work constraints and having to leave at 6 o'clock, and I just biked the whole way there. Um, wh- who were some of the folks that you ran into in Anchorage? Who were some of the folks that helped you get into it and, and that were able to support you in that journey? Oh, okay. So um, hmm. uh, a big – a big um, there's a, another queer folk um, – believe they're non-binary it could be wrong uh that was the volunteer coordinator and the eventual president and they kind of like they weren't so much into bike touring but they were very much into activism and bike and bike um and bringing um you know, doing bike outreach and things like that, that really got me into learning how and being more confident in my skills to want to break out and not worry about having a breakdown or something in the road. And their name was Jaybird Parkhurst. And also there's a, there's a guy named Dylan. I can't remember 
his last name, but he was really big into bike touring. He's been to all seven continents, um, not on his bike necessarily. Uh, he did one from Portland to the southern tip of South America. And uh, like that was the first time I heard of me doing anything like that. I was like, wow. Like, I think I'd known people that supposedly did supported tours across the country, but they weren't, like, camping, and they were supported through vans and things. And they were just, like, on a road cycle that was clean with a water bottle and some peanut butter and stayed in hotels. And so that's kind of cheating, <laughs> I think. Different style, uh, for sure. Yeah, different style. Yeah, for sure. So e-bikes versus regular bikes. Yeah, they're both bikes. Just different kind of bikes. Um, And so, yeah, and then... um. Goodness, um, what was I thinking of? Um, there is one other person I have in mind in particular, and I think I just lost it. <laughs> That's okay. So, if you remember, yeah. you can let us know. Yeah, yeah, we'll, like we'll do. Good crew of folks to get oh, you set up. Yeah, yeah. Momoko Saunders, who, uh, oh. uh, who, who helps run Bike Farm. I actually ran into her for the very first time at off the chain bicycle collective in Anchorage, Alaska. They were coming through um, with uh, with their bikes to start in Anchorage, and kind of they're gonna they're about ready to strike out onto the trails and get out there and do their whole big Alcan tour. And I met that and I was like, wow, that's really impressive. And because um, I know it's a bit of a journey just driving the Alcan and. I still don't think I'd ever want to bike it myself, quite honestly. <laughs> but it's uh, it's a uh, it's I've known many people from actually two or three different people now from Portland have done the the Alaska to out through the Alcan trip, and it's it's a doozy, but it's definitely like well worth it if you have the time and the perseverance and the money. But it's it's an expensive tour and it's a long tour and it takes a lot of patience and a lot of perseverance. Yeah, but yeah, so those those three people stick furthest out in my mind, I would say. Okay, awesome. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Well, Polly, what's interesting is that it sounds like a lot of uh, the ways that, that you were biking at first wasn't, it was really out of necessity. Like you needed to get to work or you wanted to go visit a friend and that was, you know, the only way to get there. You wanted to go to the beach when you were in Florida. So that's a, I mean, I, Bikes have so much utility, not even just within cities, right? Like bikes can really get you places if you're, uh, and in your case, it sounds like you like kind of didn't know what you're, you were getting yourself into on all these trips. I really, I really (laughs) didn't. Uh, I actually got a flat on the last about five or 10 miles of my trip to the beach. And I had to like, I did, was, was far enough to get a portable pump and I had to pump it up every like five miles or two like five well five miles uh five or ten minutes maybe maybe 30 minutes if i pushed it uh because i had forgotten a wrench because the back wheel was not a quick release so yeah that that was a fun little adventure that sounds, I mean, I, I laughed when you said that. That sounds terrible. <laughs> that it was, so it was, and it was like 85 <laughs> to 90 degrees outside. I definitely stopped at a Cracker Barrel for lunch that, that trip. <laughs> I think that was before my flight, actually. Um, and there's this really cool little little farm stand I went to and bought a tomato. It was a great little adventure. And then that's when I realized, like, like bike touring is really 
totally about the 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 trip and not the destination. What's the saying? The adventures in the um in getting there, half the ventures in getting there. It really is. And uh, that's what I found like I like best about bike touring is meeting new people at campsites or on the road and sharing stories and um, supporting each other in whatever way you can and, and, and finding weird things that you might not necessarily run into on a car or might not want to stop for. And have you, um, I, I don't know how long, how long it's been since you've been uh, in Portland or how long you've been here, but you've done a fair amount of bike camping in, yes. uh, or in Oregon too. Is that right? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. What are some of the favorite, some of your favorite trips that you've gone on here? My f- favorite, well, my favorite campsite, I'm going to say uh, specifically for bike camping, we have a really good hiker biker is uh, Cape Lookout. And it's a really great little first yeah. tour. You can, you can, if you're experienced, you can go all the way from Portland. Uh, I don't particularly enjoy punishing myself on the Cascades, but, um, it, and if you don't, and if you're not that experienced, you can also just take, what I often do is just take the, um, the wave bus down to Tillamook and that's like a quick little 25, 20 mile jaunt. Not even that, I think. And just to Cape Lookout, and it's got an amazing hiker biker, and it's right on the beach. Um, but as trips, I think uh, my all-time favorite is my first um, large-scale bike tour that was multi-state. I did from in 2013. I went from Seattle to San Francisco, and I used, took the the 101 to the one, and. Um, well, this happened in Washington. My, my absolute favorite bike touring story is um, I was in, um, gosh, what is it called? Olympia. And Olympia is kind of, I don't know if you've been there, it's a little weirdly set up, especially if it's at night and you're not ever been there before. And I was like kind of going back and forth. I wasn't sure which way to get on the highway. And as I like getting dark, it's like, I don't think I should even get on the highway, but I don't want to buy a hotel already. Is there where to camp that's legal? So um, I kind of like went back and forth trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then at this one, this second time I went to this one gas station, there's a guy on the corner. He's like, Hey, are you on a bike tour? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, do you need a place to camp? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you want to camp in my backyard? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and he, we went to his house and he was just this cool bike punk kind of hippie house and full of like probably a three bedroom with like 10 people living in it. And uh, he had a little platform to put tents on in his backyard. I'm like, this is so great. And we shared a beer and hung out and shared bike stories. And that, that is like my absolute thing, favorite thing about bike touring. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yes, that, that was a bit, not in Oregon, but it was close. It was in Olympia. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, and I, I really enjoyed the 101 in general. Um, the first time I ever went to Cannon Beach was, uh, and the Tillamook Cheese Factory, and I, I'm a cheese nerd, so that was a huge thing for me. I literally grew up in Tillamook Cheese, and I was so excited to be there. And I'm like, my bike took me, and then my bike took me there. And then... Um, I, uh, yeah, and I, and I got the first time I went to Cannon Beach, it was on that tour. So that's, it's probably one of the tours I'm most fond of. And it's certainly, one, and it's certainly also an Oregon tour. So out of all the tours, I would say, yeah, that one's one of my favorites. That That's great. Cause I've wondered about, um, biking along the Oregon coast and I don't know what time of year you went, but sometimes when I've been out there, it seems like it would not always be 
pleasant to ride your bike along there, but, but you, oh, yeah. and I'm pretty comfortable, you know, in riding near traffic, but it seems like, I guess, I think time, time of year becomes pretty important. It, it does. And that, that, that also matters if you time of year affects like how comfortable you are with the weather or like you said, the traffic, the traffic doesn't tend to bother me. Um, I, and I just kind of had to, I ended up planning it for September because I was told, I was told that was the, like, it's great to be cool in the, it's not too, too cool or too warm, should I say. And it also ended up working out the way my work ended up. My work has a small shutdown period and I was able to schedule in a couple of weeks without much problem because there wasn't much need for me there. So that really worked out pretty magically. Actually left on September 11th. So I was able to get a ticket for about like, I think it was like 90 bucks with a one way to Seattle, which is pretty astronomically cheap from Alaska. So <laughs> it really worked out for me actually pretty well. Um, and um, that tour took about 16 days, by the way, if you're curious. Yeah, actually, I was curious. So about 16 days and then you were in San Francisco. That's Yeah, yeah, that is in, two days in Portland, two days in San Francisco. So it was a 20 day tour, but um, 16 on the road. Mm-hmm. And then you, um, and you camped most of the way or you stayed with friends sometimes or, uh, I camped, I was, I had known, I was told about warm showers, but I just hadn't really wanted to navigate that. And I'm like, um, oh, was planning on camping anyways. It just seemed like an extra that I, I, I'm already kind of, I felt ADHD. So I get pretty overwhelmed. So like, I'm just going to do, and I get, you kind of want to do things a very certain way. So I just did it. So I was going to do it. I kind of wish I had signed up for normal warm showers in in hindsight because there's a couple of times where it's kind of a little a little stuck, and it might have avoided either me either a hotel stay or or a weird night. Um, so um, like there's that guy that I ran into that great story that worked out really perfectly, and I stayed at, at their place and they were very nice. But in Tillamook, I got stuck in. Uh, um, and I ended up just staying in this 24 hour laundromat all night and hanging out till the next bus came. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that can be that a little was, stressful. Yeah, it was a little stressful. And then around Northern California, around the Redwood, right where the Redwood start, um, I ended up having a hotel. And also I did another hotel in, in Washington in, I can't remember what the town's called, but it's a really cool little town. I really enjoy going there every time I'm there. Um, Raymond, Raymond, Washington, is a it's a cute little logging town, very southern, southern, southwestern Washington, kind of very working class, but very, very neat little vibe. And it's um, and I ended up I ended up taking a hotel there too because there there's no campsites around. And I just was done, and yeah, and I don't mind. I don't mind doing a hotel like once a tour, especially if it's going to be a two week tour plus, it's nice to get that shower in and have your own space. That isn't like somebody's couch or whatever, you know, you can relax a little bit in a different <laughs> yeah. Kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, it's very nice. It's kind of like luxurious. Even that one star hotel motel. Yeah. Gets right. Like luxurious. The, the cheapest hotel feels really decadent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. $60 sounds like, you know, like a pretty good, a pretty good deal when you've been on the road for over a week without really showering much. 
<laughs> well, I, I did want to ask you, you touched on this a little bit. I know you've done some, um, you've taught some classes, I think maybe a bike farm on, on bike camping. Yeah, aimed, I, I, I think, yeah, aimed. And if I recall correctly, cause I, I think I had a conflict, so I couldn't take it, but it was like specifically focusing on like women, trans women, or maybe transgender yeah. folks, so non-binary it, it folks. Yeah. Yeah. So it was a women trans femme kind of situation. So just, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and well, uh, I, I want to give a quick shout out um, to my friend uh, Claire Bach, who was also a bike farm volunteer, and she helped me. She helped me run it. Um, I think I believe both times. It might have just been one time. I can't remember now. Well, so something that you touched on. I mean, I know that um, you know, as women, we may feel differently than other folks do or we may have and i imagine as a trans woman there's some vulnerability you feel that uh, and safety concerns and things like that and can you just talk about some of the things that you addressed in those classes along those lines because i you know i think about this like i think about things like some of the great um bike trips that I've heard like Guthrie take and I always think you know would I be comfortable doing something like that would I be not just would I be safe but would I be comfortable right which these are different kinds of things for sure and I've uh, just to touch on like my own experiences real quick as I've I felt pretty luckily comfortable although I, I admit I was not um uh, I would admit there's there was some privilege going on there because a being white and b uh, up until 2000 and about so I think it was summer yeah summer 2017 was when I started transitioning so for the first roughly five or six years of my touring experiences I was a pre- I was a queer person but I was a queer male presenting person so um like maybe i'd wear leggings but it wasn't really you know it wasn't really it was pretty obvious that to most people that it it wouldn't be or it wouldn't be obvious that it was trans or anything like that it was pretty under the radar even even to my friends i hadn't really come out um so that that like I'm sure my experiences could have been different. Um, uh, and it certainly would have been different uh, of a random dude shouting at me, which even in, you know, it is Olympia, but it is nighttime. And it's, but he seemed like, like I have a pretty good read on people. I think that helps me too. Um, luckily the only thing I've really faced on a bike tour, at least is I definitely have gotten some uh, cheerful honks when I'm just riding in my sports bra and squirt. So, <laughs> you know, and uh, I have, other experiences that other writers have shared with me but generally speaking i've never heard of anybody saying there's anything really terrible happening but you are out alone when i'm bike touring at least um some that's, that's something i touched on is you know you know if you want to feel safer it's always good to ride in pairs and just for, for and not just for from you know um the usual weirdness that women might face in uh, problems but just as a as a animals and um breakdown standpoint it's good to have a buddy that can like back you up in any way possible um so that's one thing is like buddy says to me there's knowing your route is very important and what uh, for me personally um i think i might touch on this a little bit uh is and especially trans women in general is um where what the what the 
socio-political makeup of the area you're going through is like and how you should, you know, that which would drive how you should um, necessarily um, present or, you know, what or, or what you should watch out, if you should watch out for anything, or you should, if you should be extra on guard or maybe avoiding certain areas if you can to campsites that might be more friendly um, or areas in general that might be more friendly. But um, uh, that that gets a little personal at a certain point and what your own comfortability level is. Um, like I said, I feel pretty privileged as a white person and as a um, person that can go kind of incognito at times, especially with my little short pixie cut that I have right now. I could blend in very easily if I wanted to. Um, so there's there's a thing there. So routing is very important for multiple reasons, especially from a, a femme safety standpoint, but also from a safety standpoint in general. And so and, and then it's a matter of I think there are things you can do. Like if do you want to carry your pepper spray? Do you want to um, know where the nearest police station is, or you know where the nearest safe point is, or have a plan? Like what if you know, thing A happens to me or thing B happens to me, what is what is like my backup plan or what is my safety plan? So like having a general safety plan. But yeah, I generally on tour, maybe it's just me personally, um, but for me and from all my touring friends that are women trans femme, I seldom have heard bad stories. Like generally I like me so naive, naive, but I like to think people are generally good and they're not out to get you per se. But for women there's always a danger out there and you can't ever truly say that. But I have been fortunate enough to have almost no bad interactions on tour and most of my friends have had the same. Well, good. That's great. I think that's, I was also thinking like one thing you could do if you're going through a town is know if there's, you know, a coffee shop or a bookstore there, that might be a particularly welcoming place so that yeah. you know, if you, if you had a mechanical, you had a place to try to get to maybe where you at least, you know, maybe would feel some comfort, at least in the environment. If you're going through a, a, an area you know, a more conservative area or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, it, it's good. And yeah, and also, yeah, knowing where bike shops are is really good. Coffee shops are great, um, especially for like info. Um, I like to joke that it's kind of like I've used my skills I've learned from being a nerd and playing a lot of role-playing games. I'm like, you go to the inn to ask what's, you know, what's happening in the town. So it's like you go to your local barista and they can tell you what's up, generally speaking. And they're generally more progressive places, I feel like. And yeah, and then also, yeah, if you, if there's a bike collective, it'll be cheaper. And you can almost certainly say that most bike collectives will be safe spaces for everybody involved. That's not always a hundred percent true. And there's always weird. I've had weird um, times, even in bike farm with people but generally speaking it's going to be a safer place and and generally even if it's there's not like a super comfortable space at least you know you won't be stuck somewhere and you can get your bike fixed if you have a breakdown right um i'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about um how it is for you being a, a trans woman in the bicycling community perhaps in portland or back in alaska and you know what kind of transphobia you've dealt with and maybe where you found support in community 
Yeah, that's, thank you. Um, that is something I actually really wanted to talk about. So in Alaska, I feel like um, they're, the bike community in general tends to lean progressive. But in general, when you're a trans person in Alaska, it's just it's a plain old uh, fat, sad I guess to a point sad fact that there's not a lot of trans people there and there's not a lot of experience that even the most progressive people either make mistakes or are maybe afraid of what they don't understand or even afraid to make mistakes. And I definitely got involved in, I didn't really get involved, should I say, I went on a, um, I met up with a, a mountain biking group and I felt my experience there was, um, at best, I don't know how to like misunderstood per se, or my or the or or maybe I misunderstood what their what the vibes were there, um, and at worst uh, problematic. And yeah, I don't want to say t- the word turf, but that there it's some it's really hard sometimes as a trans person in general understanding if something's a microaggression or a misunderstanding, and that's the toughest part. Um, especially when you're in parts of bike communities that you've never been a part of before or in, say, um, a place you've never been to before or you're new to the bike community and maybe you know how people in general might act towards you, but you're not how sure you'll be received in that particular community because that can change. But yeah, so I felt like I just, there was a little bit of apprehension and I'm not sure if it was transphobia or if it was them not sure how to act or maybe just I'm this awkward ADHD girl and maybe I was, I was not well received because of that um, necessarily, but there's some, some minor amount of tension. People were friendly, but there seemed to be some unspoken tension and there seemed to be some, some people that like were clearly like, we want to accept you, but we don't really we don't want to be your friend directly. We don't like, there's a bit of mistrust possibly, or a bit of, un, uh, I'm not sure how I should proceed or I'm not sure like what you are or how to treat you or if I should trust. Yeah. It was just a general feeling of uneasiness and mistrust. And, um, but like, but on the surface level, they were very friendly, you know, but clearly there was something else in their mind uh, to me at least. And that, that was the Alaskan women's mountain biking, um, um, group in their general, um, there isn't one particular group, but of the groups that I was a part of that always seemed to be a common denominator, except for when people knew who I was from before. Like I had some friends that are mountain bikers that are in the community, especially with I being a, such a large part of off the chain bicycle collective. I was well received there because people knew me and they knew my story and all this jazz. Could you describe turfism in or turf in your own words, Polly? Just for oh yeah yeah I'm sorry not okay. yeah that's true not everybody's heard that term so turf stands for trans exclusionary radical feminists so um these are feminists who don't believe that trans women are women they might gender them properly and they might try to respect pronouns but they and at the core they don't believe they're truly women 
and they don't think they belong and most of them don't think they belong in women's spaces and they maybe should be separately equal which is is we all know from history is not equal what if some of the uh, experiences you've had in Portland being what's been, you know, in regards to the experience in Alaska, compare or contrast or? Yeah. So think some yeah. Of the differences are and what, what brings you to Portland? What, what has it exciting for you in that regard here and now? So I've been here since 2016 with my slight hiatus during COVID um, since from 20, about May, 2020 to February, 2021 is when I came back. And, um, yeah, I would say I was very well received. Um, I was very well respected. I think there was some, a bit of, when I came out, there was a bit of like a small amount of tension, um, and maybe people getting used to the idea and adjusting to the new pronouns and the new name and things like that. Um, I think, and in certain small instances in different various parts of the bike community that I I felt like I was being microaggressed against for one reason or another. Um, and there are a couple of people in particular that I've had problems with, but overall it's, it's been pretty good. And there have been some other times that I might have perceived a problem that maybe didn't exist. And those were ironed out and we became friends later on. And there are some situations that aren't ironed out and are still kind of ongoing tensions for one reason or another, whether it be trans related or me related is, is, you know, up term interpretation, but from what I see, I felt it's trans related. Uh, but I don't want to like try to say, tell, try to say something that may be my opinion and not necessarily fact. But from my sure. point of view, I felt like, yeah, I felt like maybe there's been some microaggressions, like they want to, you know, pronoun me right and all do all this. But I feel like I very much was treated, has been still treated by like a like a man by certain people in the bike community, despite per, you know correct use of pronouns or whatever some such. So, but yeah, overall, it's been pretty good. There's been, there's, you know, as any part of the bike industry, there is, I think, even in Portland, and I've heard this from many friends, there is some sexism and there is some other things going on that aren't very great towards women or queer folks or trans folks um, when it comes to that kind of thing. Um, sexism and unwelcome behaviors uh, definitely permeate any bike culture, including Portland's, sometimes especially Portland's. And um, I haven't gotten too much of that, but I have having a lot of friends who have. Um, and so on that aspect of things, I don't think Portland is actually much different than most other places. Maybe on the surface, people try to act better and be better. But at the core, there's still some a lot of problematic behaviors um, that are coming especially from men in the community towards women, whether it be cis or transgendered women. Yeah, I'll, I'll just I'll just co-sign that. I mean, as a, you know, mostly straight cis woman, I, I don't know that I think that. I, yeah, I agree that there's definitely this veneer of Portland that on the surface seems sort of 
like it's a little better than that, but in a lot of ways, it's it's not much different here than in than in many other places. And I I've definitely yeah heard seen a lot of sexism and homophobia and transphobia uh, in the bike community here, and it's definitely something that I've heard a lot about. Um, some problematic behaviors on large group rides and uh, you know th- things like that. So yeah, and it's 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 really stressful and confusing because sometimes at first you don't even realize what's going on. Right. You just, it can be a really stressful experience because you're sort of like doubting what happened. Like, like what you were saying, like, is this, you know, like sometimes I'm like, well, is this because I'm from the East coast or is this sexism, right? Like what's going on here? Like, am I just not fitting in here or is it me or is it, you know, the fact that I just, past that guy on a bike and he doesn't like it or whatever, you know? So, yeah. And I, I, I can relate to that on, a, on an aspect of it. Is it my, am I just a weirdo ADHD girl or is this person transphobic? Like, am I pressing something, some of these buttons in some way, or they just don't like queer trans people? Like it's, there's like those microaggressions that you can't really, you pick up on it, but you can't really say one way or the other. And so it's very frustrating and it's very hard to get people to believe you, even where you are very good core friends. And when you think you have clear signs of bylaws that are broken at a bike collective, say, and you can't really say anything because these people are core members that are also well-respected and it's just a gray area and so it's really tough. And sometimes what that means is just like me only going to women trans and fem night and only, and so I won't run into these other people. And it, it kind of sucks because it's like, I like helping as many people as possible. I like being a bike farm all the time and other bike collectives, but sometimes I just feel like I can't um, just for my own personal mental health and so I don't necessarily project something on somebody who may not be trying to be transphobic or do something that makes me uncomfortable but I just perceive it that way and I I am pretty you know as an ADHD person as well I am pretty outspoken and passionate and I you know causing escalate and that can just I can just end up escalating situations a lot of the time so I just tend to avoid them which kind of sucks because a lot of I feel like a lot of women are doing that they're just avoiding a situation to for the better good of the community so you don't you know rock the boat too much I know um I've had the experience of sort of saying, okay, am I, do I want to, do I want to wade into this place in this conversation? Am I ready to strap my armor on? Uh, Because, you know, or, or do I not have it in me to do that? And so then I want to avoid the space completely. And I think for me, uh, a lot of times when I make the decisions that I do, I mean, I do have a lot of privilege as a white cis woman. And so, uh, but if I, am in a place where I'm hearing racism or homophobia or transphobia, I do feel sort of an obligation to like, uh, you know, try to get in between the folks who might yeah. be the victim of that if possible. Um, call it but, out. You know, but there's, yeah, to call it out um, and, and sort of, you know, uh, try to interrupt that behavior from my place of relative privilege. But then, you know, there's sometimes there's only so much you can take and just for your own mental health, 
you need to step away and then maybe make some decisions to be in places that'll be more comfortable for a while where you feel like you don't have to sort of defend who you are as a person just by existing in that place. Mm-hmm. Have you, um, you know, talking about space and spaces, it sounds like you've interacted with a lot of different groups, both in your time in Alaska um, and in your time here in Portland, whether through volunteer work that you do or through, uh, I think we had mentioned Pedal Palooza earlier as a way of knowing folks. Um, what do you, what do you feel like? Do you, do you feel like there's a good amount of space here presently? Is there space that you wish you saw being made? And if so, like, what would that look like? And like, what would, what would like the perfect poly ride, uh, look like for you? Okay, so yeah, that's that's a really good question, and I think that's kind of started already. Um, one of my great friends, um, she and another uh, queer woman, um, uh, one of them being cisgendered, one of them being non-binary, I believe, if that matters, <laughs> um, started a new ride called the Unity Ride in Portland, and it's a really great ride of women trans femme individuals that is also POC centered um so uh, I think that's the kind of space that we've Portland especially has needed especially for the people of color but also for women trans and femme um, because there has been a lot of uncomfortable situations on group rides with cisgendered men and that people are now kind of avoiding those rides because they don't want to be in these situations. Um, and it's it's really important that we have spaces for those people. And I was reading a book, too. Um, I wish I could remember the name of it. Um, but it, it was, it was uh, about different experiences of marginalized people throughout the bicycle community. And a lot of those um, rides, besides being male-centered or sometimes money-centered, and people of different socioeconomic backgrounds and queer and trans people are historically being marginalized are also historically tend to be on a lower income bracket and are sometimes barely making ends meet. So if you're on a ride, you're like, let's all go to the brew pub. That's like $8 a pint. It's like, you can't afford, you know, like sometimes like a, like a, even a a $2 soda, much less an $8 pint. So, um, so that's, that's a big deal too. And I think uh, we, um, end up making sure we schedule stops, um, and support each other and make sure that, you know, everybody is on the same page and everybody isn't feeling left out. Uh, and more importantly, um, the uni ride is a no drop ride meaning that we will always make sure that we try our best not to lose anybody and slow down for the people who are um, unable to keep it with pace. So we're trying to make sure everybody stays together and that nobody is being outpaced. That is a, you know, I went on that ride uh, once in the fall and I haven't been able to, to get back to anymore, but it's a great ride. And I agree that being able to go, there's just a real, I don't know, like 
it, it feels more comfortable for, I mean, I went with a friend, but I would have felt comfortable going by myself, which might feel a little too intimidating to do on a lot of group rides if I wasn't sure if I was going to know anybody. But I, I, yeah, that's a great ride. And I think it's a great example of a way to, you know, be really welcoming to folks who might not want to go on a lot of the sort of, I don't want to say traditional group rides, because in Portland, they're also, there's just a lot of different groups of weirdos riding bikes around. I don't know that any of the rides are exactly traditional, but you know, some of the ones where there can be some behaviors that are, that are uncomfortable for people. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. And um, uh, I think I also wanted to add that I think being a ride does a really good job of making people feel welcome. And I think one of the things that we've been doing or recently started the last time I was there is doing a big, um, a little, it's a little problematic during COVID times. We made it work uh, a big um, group circle where we do introductions and pronouns if you're comfortable and kind of really helping connect the people on the ride more because sometimes they're on a ride and nobody, you don't, you don't know anybody. Like you said, and it's hard to necessarily, sometimes you're shy. Sometimes you have other barriers to wanting to talk to other people or, or, um, or mingle. And even if you want to, um, so that really helps break the ice and, um, connects us and, and brings greater unity. And, uh, that being said, I also want to give a shout out um, for you need a ride. If you were interested in joining this ride and you're listening, uh, it is you can find them and their when they post the rides on I believe it is Unity Ride PDX on Instagram. Uh, we'll link to that in our show notes too. We'll so yeah. we'll make sure to let let folks yeah. know about it there. So thank yeah, you. Great. Yeah, no worries. You described yourself as a cheese nerd, and I wanted to know. Why should people be cheese nerds? What does a cheese nerd do? And what is so wonderful about it? Uh, I'm super curious. Oh, cheese. I, I just love cheese. Like, um, I'm like, the, the joke is like, cheese is a meal. <laughs> it's like, I just won't, it's like my favorite snack. And I just love the variety of cheeses. It's also, if you find like the harder cheeses, you could keep those for six hours to maybe even a day. Um, so it's really good bike snack food. Um, I especially like to get cheese curds or cheese cubes just to pop in while I can eat that while I'm riding, which is really quite wonderful. Um, so yeah, I just, yeah, I just always been into cheese in a big way. I love pizza. I love, um, I love macaroni. I love shells and cheese or macaroni and cheese. I love yeah anything with cheese on it. I'm generally into, um, I think one of my favorite things is uh, stuffed crust cheese pizza. It's like my favorite. It's, like, it's kind of like the, like one of the the trashier things I think I eat and like. But it in it's uh, but yeah. But I really like just the variety of cheese and um, the flavors you get. I think it's I guess it's like metal snobby thing is just like <laughs> it's cheese, you know. It's my little snobby thing, and it's my little um, guilty pleasure, I guess. Or I was like, just overeat on it all the time. Emily Joan was also asking if they wanted to talk about my Alaskan bike tour experience of, like, I think more specifically my recent tour through Denali, which was like my second biggest trip. But uh, yeah, I had. Um, I forgot. I was, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys want to touch on that. that real quick? Yeah. Do you yeah. want to tell us about that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was um, the big plus of 
going back to Alaska, um, even though I didn't hadn't really planned on it and wasn't really prepared for it. Um, I was able to, yeah, go on, on this amazing bike tour um, through an acquaintance uh, who was kind enough to fund it for me as I had almost no money at the time. Um, and, yeah, it was really good. So I went through 500 miles of Alaskan backcountry and roads, um, about 110 miles of backcountry, which was technically a highway, quote-unquote, but it is really uh, kind of a large dirt road um, with lots of potholes. <laughs> so, um, uh, and only about 10 miles of it is paved. And then I did uh, about a few hundred, three or 400 uh, of highway miles. Um, and we did like a small four or five mile riverbed um, journey that took us to a trailhead um, to a glacier, which was really amazing. We got off our bikes and hiked this glacier, and it was really lovely. We, I'm not sure if we even locked, locked our bikes up. We just left them in this little little uh, turnout for um, camping and walked right up. That's, very, that's how Alaska is for you. I wouldn't recommend always just leaving your things open like that, but um, generally in the middle over like that in Alaska, it's pretty safe. And we got to hike this this glacier. It was really amazing, and we camped out off this off a uh, off the trails and in the in outside of camps, just kind of all just off trail camping the entire time. Um, and yeah, I got to see Denali for the first time ever. It was kind of embarrassing. I'd never been to Denali, and I grew up there for roughly thirty years, and it was the first time I've been through there at all. And it is really beautiful country. I highly recommend this as a bike tour. Um, it's a great, it's a great part of Alaska. It's it, it's not the hardest touring you'll ever do. It's definitely at least an intermediate to sometimes advanced level, depending on how you look at it. Um, and despite Alaska being a red state, it is a fairly safe ride if you're queer or trans most of the people out there are if they're going to be conservative they're generally libertarians they don't really care who you are or what you're doing for the most part um so it's yeah it's a it's a generally generally safe tour and a generally really amazing part of alaska um the only thing i think you really need to worry about is of course the bears are a huge danger that's probably the only real danger on that ride if you know what you're doing and you know where you're going and you have a plan um and you have a buddy uh i would definitely bring a buddy i would definitely bring a gun um actually ran into my first wolf on this tour uh, i found out also my uh, acquaintance um, taught me something really useful is a great way to scare off bears or other animals of any stripe um, without using mace or a gun is uh, an is a air horn. Big loud noise. That's really all you need. Big loud noise. Yeah, and the air horn is almost is almost as loud as you get next to a gun. So you know, I was just thinking you could probably scare off a lot of unwelcome creatures and people with an air horn. <laughs> like yeah, generally speaking. Just... Maybe that's just a handy thing to have on your bike. Yeah, and, and as a side note, a side note to that, a really easy thing to get that isn't lethal at all, or even necessarily hurtful to depending on how you look at it. If you don't, 
don't want to use mace or you don't have it or you just um are afraid it might be used against you um what is really good is you can just have a good thousand lumen flashlight and you can blind somebody for a good solid minute or two if you shine it right in their eyes and uh they will not be able to do anything and it can be more effective than mace um for both creatures and people um because sometimes you know people you can it hurts but you can still like kind of see you can still have function whereas a big bright thousand lumen light you will be completely blind for a good minute so um that's a that's an option if you're looking for safety and you don't trust mace or you want a a backup option then that is a great backup option if you don't want to carry a gun backup mace and an air horn or mace and air horn and a big thousand lumen flashlight those are great uh non-lethal options that are pretty difficult to use against you so riding around did you encounter any moose i always feel like up there i was always more afraid of the moose than the bears yeah the moose are definitely more of a danger depending on how you come across them i definitely ran in about i think two or three different moose encounters um on that trip and uh yeah you just got to be aware for them and give them a good 20 feet of space um and sometimes that can be a bit of a challenge if they're directly in your path. That can sometimes kind of put the kibosh on your trip for up to an hour sometimes, which can be quite yeah. stubborn. But it's yeah, not something you want to mess wait. with or, or <laughs> tempt fate with. You know, it's like don't try to go around them if you don't feel like you have the space to give them. It's, yeah, they can definitely be more more deadly than bears. Bears are generally only a huge threat if they're hungry or it's mating season or you're near some cubs, uh, if they're, if you're just in their space, you know, you just kind of give them, give them a lot of space too. And they're generally fine, you know, um, with the exception of polar bears who will hunt you for sport. Yeah, um, totally. Yeah. See, polar yeah. Bear ride other way. Um, yeah. See, polar bear have a gun. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. that's my, if you're going to think you're going to be a polar bear country, I have a large caliber rifle. Or at very least, a, a nice pistol. You, you, they will. They are the world's largest land animal. They're, I think they're even heavier than than some elephants, uh, and they are very strong and very deadly, and can track you from miles away. And there are parts of um, Alaska you can bike to or to where there will be polar, or could be polar bears. Um, so yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah, wildlife is definitely a big problem on that tour. That is probably the biggest danger. Um, but um, I, I guess I was thinking initially from a queer trans perspective, it's actually a pretty safe tour. Most of the most of the parts of Alaska outside of the valley um, and uh, parts of Anchorage are pretty safe for queer and trans people. They may not be fond of them, but they are not generally speaking looking out to get you. Um, uh, but yeah, um, case in point, I went to a lodge and lodged in to be all Trump supporters, but, uh, I cracked jokes with them. I was long, you know, as long as you're comfortable in that situation and I, I'm kind of used to these kind of people growing up in Alaska. I know the type of kind of like low key working class conservative, like I get it and I get why they are the way they are. And actually by the time I was done with that, I, that conversation hangout, I had con- convinced one of them. I'm not sure if it's the, the BLM is like a, like is a real thing and she's important or that 
that capitalism is bad or maybe it was both but that yeah it's the right but they're the right kind of conservative like they're they're kind of just like heavy libertarians or or light conservatives that are just like want money and jobs and so i mean it's a little easier and that's generally what you're going to come across in um alaska i think the bigger danger is making sure you're not actually on somebody's property or some such like that because just like i think parts of oregon some people are pretty particular about property lines and intruders and um aren't very fond of them there's a lot of people that you the biggest thing you should understand about alaska if you've never been there is there's a lot of people who go there to get away from it all like there's there's a joke there's two kinds of alaskans those who are born there and those who are trying to get away from something and a lot of times that something is the government so they're not really fond of other people or, you know, or law in general, per se. It, parts of Alaska can be fairly lawless. So um, yeah, it's a thing like, to keep in mind. There's that, there's that, I feel like for as remote as I was working at the time, there's also this like easygoing good naturedness to folks who are out. Like you can get either, I feel like you can get the person who, has the sign that's like, you know, trespassers will be shot, uh, survivors will be shot again. Yeah, exactly. Next to them seen that sign. Really cool person who just built a cabin is like, hey, oh, cool, that's your thing, great. You want you want to come get a beer? You know, <laughs> like yeah, I don't have yeah, anything, yeah. you know, I think it's got that kind of that. thing. Or you want to smoke a joint nowadays, the really, um, actually even beforehand, I mean, actually Alaska is one of the last states that weed was illegalized. Um, uh, and it is legal there again. If you, the people who aren't from Alaska, pot is fully legal with dispensaries. But yeah, um, yeah, there's there's all sorts, and um, generally speaking, you're right, they're either going to be like not really into people, get off my property, or like, hey, let's have a beer. But I mean, and generally, like the rule is just don't talk about politics in Alaska, and you're going to be fine. Um, people are generally they want to help people; they're very friendly on the surface. But deep down, they have some strong feelings about certain things, and it's just best to avoid those topics. Um, mm-hmm. So if you avoid talking politics, uh, and sometimes even if you don't, in my experience, but I was, I'm well experienced in you know talking to these and to, to conservatives, and I'm a little bit more better about being neutral than certain people of my um, background and identity. So I think it was a little easier for me. But yeah, I mean, on the surface, most Alaskans are extremely friendly and will give you the shirt off their back um, if you need it and are willing to help out people because it is a very, very dangerous place and people survive by helping each other. So uh, so I think what we're hearing is is Alaska's fine. Just watch out for polar bears. Just watch out for polar bears. Yes, yes. And don't talk about, don't talk about, leave your politics at the door most of the time. Yeah, yeah. Just smoke a joint and have fun. Yeah. Uh, or, drink, or drink the beer or whatever you do. Um, just say yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was real interesting. It was the, it was the first tour, um I think I'd done where it actually used a water pump a lot. I had actually kind of avoided doing that. Um, I think partially as a weight thing and also as a, I don't want to spend a hundred dollars on a water pump. <laughs> you know? So that was interesting. And it's really, if you go to Alaska, you definitely need a water pump because you're going to need a lot of water. And there are parts of Alaska where like the place we were at, there was nothing but an occasional lodge for over a hundred miles. 
Um, there's, there's literally just nothing out there. Occasionally, every 40, 50 miles, you might might run into a lodge. But um, for the most part, there's really nothing out there. And you have to bring all the food you need and all the water. And you have to have all, either the water you need or more likely the water you need and a pump. Um, so, yeah, those are those are big things um, that I kind of actually didn't surprisingly have ex- much experience in, that I gained experience in um, through my writing uh, partner acquaintance. And, um, yeah, and there are things to keep in mind if you have plans to a bucket list Alaska um as a bike tour given the yeah the, given the trip uh is there something that you would have done differently like was there one thing that you got done with it and you're like oh you know this trip had, was great but you know if i brought this next time or if i did this this way was there i think what, what I, did the trip teach you i think i um two things one thing you didn't exactly mention um but i'll, I'll answer your main part of your question first is um I think maybe I actually would have brought a little less stuff. I think I maybe had too much stuff, but it was, it's always better to have more than you need than less than you need. But there's a, there's a real balance in bike touring where you got to go weight versus comfortability. And sometimes less weight makes you more comfortable because getting up those pretty, some of those gnarly Hills is a little bit easier when you have five less pounds in your bags or even one less pound sometimes. Um, So being a little bit more, cautious about how I packed and what I brought and, and, um, and then I, I, I wish I had a little, I'd had a little bit more time to, uh, explore the glaciers, but I was with, uh, acquaintance and they, and partner who was financing this. So I kind of was also on a little bit their schedule. And I think just like, um, the part it's not, that's not in your question is, um, I, my biggest experience was, learning to tour with somebody else because it was the only tour I've ever done or really been with somebody uh, of that caliber, at least of more than, you know, more than a day or two days. Um, and, uh, we had a lot of negative vibes and it was kind of made awkward by that. And it was both my fault and, and we, we were both kind of clashing in some ways and it, and it made it really uncomfortable at certain points. It was a really fun time that was the, but it was also a really bad time at times. And there was a lot of like tension there and, um, ended up ending somewhat badly. And, um, I, I wish I had been a little bit more conscious of how I was affecting people and, and, and the kind of person that I was choosing to go on this tour with, but I was in a weird place and I, and I was just really wanted to do this tour. So I'm like, let's just try it. It'll be fine. We get along and we get, we've been getting along. Uh, but you know, you really got to like, even, even your best friends, you can even have sometimes have, you know, quarrels with your best friends. So you really got to know what you want out of that tour versus what the other person wants out of the tour and, and have like an equilibrium or, or understand who, who needs what and you're, you're meeting their needs um, as well as your own that you mesh well enough because some people can mesh as roommates or as just not roommates and just as friends or just as writing partners casually or just as like uh, having a drink every now and then or, 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 you know, doing whatever you just, whatever thing, but that doesn't mean you're going to mesh every aspect of your lives or every kind of trip. And certainly camping, hiking on that long of a trip, camping, hiking or biking on that long of a trip is, is a very stressful thing. And if, if you're not handling it well, then it's going to come off on them or vice versa. 
Yeah, um, riding partners are great, and they're good for safety, and they're good for support. But if you, you know, if there ends up becoming tension, then there's going to be, you're stuck with this same person for however many days. And I've, and especially with couples that I know too, or I know it's been really hard on them. And that it, it takes a really solid relationship for people who are in relationships. Go on a tour with that person. It can be very, it's already a stressful time and it can put stress on your relationship yeah. and you have to understand what you're getting into, how they're going to handle it and how you're going to handle it. And, um, and just being, having that, that whether it be a friendship or a romantic relationship, having that deeper connection where you can really understand each other and empathize with each other and um, make sure that you don't make the other person uncomfortable from one way or the other or have different perspectives on how you want to do things. And, and if you do, that you have the, the experience with each other to empathize and, and, and get through something together. Because if you're new new to each other, it, it's a lot harder to empathize with each other on both sides, and it's harder to harder to work through those things when you're new because you have less patience for the other person. Yeah, and, and like less patience for yourself too. I think. Yeah, I think it's that's one of those like both sort of dual sort of things. I, yeah, I it's, yeah, the duality thing yeah, is for like, sure. Um, tours can be like relationship makers or relationship breakers, and sometimes they're they're in between. But it sounds like from what I'm hearing is that you got like this experience, but you've also thought a lot about it and like, it's these experiences and it's this putting ourselves into kind of the, the vacuum experience of a tour uh, can really help you come out the other side. Like no matter whether it went great or whether it went terrible, like t- it just gives you some nice like, lessons learned. Yeah. It's, it's a life lesson to learn. And, um, and it's a great way to understand yourself and how you're, making other people feel or or react and um so it's, it's like it, it, it even if it comes out negative like there's something you can maybe both learn from it and hopefully even if you don't end up being friends in the long run you can you can use that information so you don't end up so you have a better tour with the next person or you don't you don't um you know get on each other's nerves into the point where it's it's toxic to each other well, Polly, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, it's yeah. been just wonderful to talk to you and hear about some of your bike camping trips and some of your experience uh, in different bike communities in, in 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 Portland and Alaska and Orlando or Florida too. And also yeah, yeah, hear yeah. some more about your experience as a as a trans woman, um, yeah, especially within the bike community. So, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was really enjoyable being here. What can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike? I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. I like my bike, it's fast. It circles around the city lights. Okay, so... We don't have a traditional headline tonight, but I have a uh, a new film that I saw uh, that I wanted to share an event that that is connected to it. Um, there is a new short film put out by Shimano called All Bodies on Bikes. 
Uh, Kaylee Kornhauser and Marley Blonsky are on a mission, a mission to change the idea that people in larger bodies can't ride bikes. The duo aims to make cycling more inclusive beyond just inviting people of all sizes to ride bikes, but by changing the entire idea of what it means to be a cyclist, not just on screens, but on trails and in people's minds. So this is a 13-minute film. It just came out within the past few days. There's like a minute-long trailer that's been uh, circling around the internet. And um, I watched it last night, and it was just a beautiful short film featuring these two really fantastic women. Um, Marley's from Seattle. Kaylee's in, I think, in Corvallis in Oregon. And um, they're friends on a bike trip. And some of the things they talk about are are really resonant. And I think it might be really interesting for folks who ride bikes to watch this because I suspect it will challenge some ideas. And um, kind of in conjunction with this, Marley and Kaylee are offering a webinar. They This is like the webinars they've been offering for a long time, I think. Um, so that event is the Biking for Big People webinar. They're offering it on April 13th and April 22nd at 5.30 p.m. Pacific. And it covers issues of concern to bigger folks on bikes, including gear like types of bikes that work for larger bodies, seat trace and clothing. And um, they will also be sharing practical tips for shopping at bike shops, shifting gears, building endurance, bike fit, pain while riding, and much more. Um, I think this would be great for folks who are themselves might feel um, like they could benefit from this information. But I also think it would be great for anybody who leads bike clubs or group rides to think about how they can make their events more comfortable and welcoming to um, just different kinds of people than, than might usually be showing up. So I just really want to recommend that folks look for what Marley and Kaylee are doing, the short film, just really, really good quality stuff. Yeah, thank you for the share. I'm going to watch. I, I know what I'm doing as soon as we stop recording. <laughs> I got my kid to watch it with me, too. He kept saying, I thought this was about bikes, but it's about bodies. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it's about bikes, too. <laughs> you know, it's like our podcast. We talk about everything. And, some, we and talk. sometimes bikes, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I think we're going to wrap up there and say thanks to our listeners for joining us for another week here on the Sprocket Podcast. The Sprocket Podcast is produced at home until we can gather safely indoors. Remember, you know, indoors with other people. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hurtbird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Eric Iverson. Cameron Lane, Richard Wazinski, Tim Mooney. Glenn Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Weiss. Doug Cohen-Miller, Todd Parker, Chris Smith. Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley, Peanut Butter Jar Matt. 
Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom, Andrew from Colorado. Drew the Welder, Anna, Andre Johnson. King of Division, Richard G. And, oh, whoops, I read the non-bold again. That's okay. <laughs> Guthrie Straw. Guthrie Straw. That's who we're talking about. <laughs> oh. Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of The Regranary. Campsite. McNair's David, Nathan Poulton. Rory in Michigan, Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay. Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel, EJ Finneran. Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skadow, Keith Hutchison. Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tan. Jason Oftenberg, Microcosm Publishing, David Moore. Todd Grossbeck, Chris Barron, Chris Barron, Chris, Chris Barron. Barron. Sean Baird, Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite. Ryan Morrow, Dude Luna, hey, he's recording. Emma Rick. <laughs> Marshall, Paula Funatake Cycle Craft. Philip M. Spartandale, no relation. Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative, Kiwana, Sarah G. Adam D, go dig a hole, Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Myra, Ar- Myra Martinez Oso. Isaac M, David Christensen, 503. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, Aaron G, Rachel Moline. And welcome back to our newest and returning donor, Yumi Diesel. Yeah. And to all of our former donors who helped us get this far, thank you very much. Now wash your hands. And wear your mask. <laughs>